The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations, the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you in these moments through Christ your Son. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. It's our second sermon in a series I've entitled Reasons to Stay on the New Testament book of 1 John. I titled that because, as I told you last week, the church that John is writing to, a group of them have left. And they've left the Christian faith, left the church, and they're trying to persuade others to leave as well. And last week, John emphasized joy as he begins this letter. But now, as was just read for you, the passage we come to today, very beginning of the book, revolves around darkness. So John says, I write to you for joy, but the first thing I have to talk to you about is darkness. It's an abrupt move, personal, spiritual, moral darkness. Why start there if he's trying to persuade people to stay, to remain Christians. Well, when you think of Austin, what are some of the most iconic parts of our city that come to mind to you? UT Tower, Pennybacker Bridge, the Capitol, Barton Springs, Town Lake, renamed Lady Bird Lake, and probably Zilker Park as well. Zilker's beautiful. Uh, Looking out on that vast green lawn as it spreads out towards the city skyline and seeing it there in the back, it's stunning. I love driving by and seeing people out there with, with Frisbees doing whatever with their dogs. You know, Patty Griffin, the song Heavenly Day. I've told you this before, right? It's about a day at Zilker with her dog. The smile on your face. It's the only thing I need. It's enough for you, for me, baby. It's enough for me. It's a smile on her dog's face. Anyways, welcome to Austin. And then also ACL is there as well as the Kite Festival and Blues on the Green, also the Trail of Lights, which I call the Trail of Tears, because we went once, one time. 
The boys were little, one traumatic lighted trail of tears for us, but Zilker is home. It's beautiful and it's home to, to so many of our favorite events, but do you know what else it's home to? A landfill. Did you know this? That the, the, um, the part just to the south side of the, of the river on the, um, on the east side, the staging ground for ACL, as well as the parking lot underneath Mopac and that part just to the west, it's all a landfill. The Butler landfill from 1948 to 1969, we buried our trash there. All the household trash in Austin, we took it there and we buried it in what is now one of the most beautiful parts of our city. But if you scrape beneath the surface, they're actually redoing it right now because the trash is coming to the top. So if you scrape just beneath the surface, what looks beautiful is not actually beautiful at all. And that's much like our lives. Y'all look beautiful this morning. Put together, calm, confident, capable, beautiful even. But just beneath the surface, beneath all of the surface of all of our lives, there's a darkness, something buried, something decaying, something dying. So we're all Zilker Park in some way. It's not too hard to make the case. Why do we put things in, put our trust in things and we hope in them and then all of a sudden they fail us? Or why is there so much sadness or hurt or anxiety in us? Why do so many things that we do, we know that they're wrong. We know that they're gonna harm us or others, but we keep on doing them. Apostle Paul asked that question. He says, why do I, the, the good that I want to do, I do not do, but the evil that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Why are we so cruel to one another? It's so much confusion about what's right, what's wrong. So much hatred and unhappiness. Why? The Bible simply answers darkness. And so that's why John begins with it here. It's his initial reason to this church about why they should stay because of how God deals with darkness. So three points this morning. First of all, God tell, or John tells them and us to begin with God. Very simply. So simple that we can miss it. It's easy to miss it. Subtle and simple because he says here that this is the message that we have heard and proclaimed to you that God is. Stop there. That God is. The Bible's fundamental message and foundational beginning point is just that. Remember John's gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. He's just echoing the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis, in the beginning, God. And this may be the greatest difference between Christians and non-Christians, but especially in the starting place in the modern world, because our starting place in the modern world is no longer God. It's not how we begin to think about what it means to be human or where life is found or what it means to flourish as a human. For example, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self is a book that I mentioned just this last week. It's by Carl Truman. It's a book I'll probably return to throughout this series. The subtitle is this, Cultural Amnesia. Expressive individualism and the road to sexual revolution. And Truman borrows this phrase there in the middle, expressive individualism from philosopher Charles Taylor. And this idea of expressive individualism, that really is where he argues, and I agree that this is our starting point now. The individual, you, me, as individuals, and not just us as individuals, but our need, many would say, our right to express ourselves our emotions, our desires, our feelings, that that is where we find meaning. That's where we begin to think this is what it means to be human and even to flourish as a human, to express our feelings and our desires, whatever they may be. Because now, according to Truman, we're all expressive individualists. And the illustration that he gives is of his grandfather. He loves to talk about his grandfather in this book. 
But his grandfather, when he was 15, stopped going to school and began working. So worked for maybe 50 years or so as a sheet metal worker in a factory in Birmingham, England, which is near the Pittsburgh of the UK, right after the Industrial Revolution. Very poor, working class, incredibly polluted. And Truman asked the question how his grandfather would have responded if he would have been asked, do you have job satisfaction? Do you, sheet metal worker in Birmingham, England, have job satisfaction? Truman says he's not even sure if his grandfather would have even understood the question. But if he had understood the question, he probably would have said, if he did, he would have answered in terms of whether his work gave him the money to put food on his family's tables and shoes on his children's feet. If, if his job did that, then yes, he was satisfied with it. So job satisfaction for him was something that dealt with the outward world. It was, it was outward looking. It was others oriented. It was tangible. It wasn't psychological for him, but that's not what you thought of when I first mentioned job description. You immediately begin to think about how you feel about the job that you do. That's job satisfaction for us and marital satisfaction. How it is that I feel about this marriage, what it's doing for me in my internal state. Friend satisfaction as well. We don't think, okay, friend satisfaction and how good of a friend I am to others, but how are my friends make me feel. And I have so many illustrations I could go on and on. I had to cut so many, but even think about this. All of the elite universities, University of Texas now being one, the elite universities in the United States and Europe, you know they all used to have divinity schools. And at divinity schools, you know what you study? You know what you think about? God. All of those universities still have the same department, but it's being renamed. And you know what they now call them? Department of Religious Studies. And they study man as a religious being. So even in our talking about God, our starting point is not him, but ourselves. Because this is the message that we have heard and proclaim, that we are, or better yet, that I am, or even more to the point, I am whatever it is that I express. And so before we go on, just ask yourself the question, how do relationships work in a situation like this? Because John's talking a lot about fellowship three different times in these opening few verses. He talks about fellowship, verse six, fellowship with God, verse seven, fellowship with others. So how do relationships work if every individual is the starting point for their own life, their own meaning, their own purpose, their own satisfaction? How does it work? Very simply, it just doesn't. Why does the solar system work? Because it's a system with one orbital center which we call the sun. That's why the planets don't crash into one another because they're operating with the very same center. Otherwise they would crash into one another. And that's what's happening to some of you right now. In your marriages, you're crashing into one another because you, your spouse or both are coming and saying, I am the beginning point. I am the starting point for everything and whatever it is needs to revolve around me. Or your friendships, it's happening as well. In our schools, our public schools in particular, it's happening in our politics, it's happening everywhere because we're a culture without a center. Or better yet, we're a culture with countless centers, countless different orbital centers, and we're crashing into one another as we try and fight to express ourselves. And John says, you'll never get out of the darkness that way. Never get out. There's an old Latin phrase I've mentioned to you before. It's originally with Martin Luther. He's the one that first used it. It's called incurvatus in se. 
Remember me mentioning that to you? It's been a while. And curvatus and say, it just means bent inward on ourselves. Because left to ourselves apart from God, our eyes, our hearts, our souls bent inward on ourselves, not outward towards him, upward towards him, outward towards others. All we find is darkness. And that's John's point. Unless we hear what he proclaims and embrace it, that God is, that he's the beginning point, that he's the orbital center, that he's the primary axiomatic value around which everything revolves, you will crash. You'll crash. And all that will be left is darkness. So ask yourself, what's the beginning point right now for me, my life? Where do I start? And around what am I revolving and am I crashing? Are you crashing right now? Second point about how Christianity deals with darkness. Begin with God, first of all. But then secondly, John tells us to consider some scenarios. And there's about, well, there's three scenarios here in verses six through 10. And they're pretty easy to notice because they all begin with the word if. There's a negative if, and then there's a positive if in the first two scenarios. And so in verse six, negative if. Verse seven, positive if. And then that happens again in verse eight and nine. Then the third and final scenario is in verse 10, and it only has a negative if. So do you see that? And kind of follow it through. And they all presume what I just said, that God is, but not just that God is, but that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And that's John's way of talking figuratively about God being holy, that he cannot abide any darkness or sin, that he cannot draw near to him. And remember what I often tell you that sin is, it's not just wrongdoing, it is, but it's also a power, a spiritual darkness that seeks to tear apart whatever it is that God has joined together, seeks to steal what God has done and then to undo what God has done. And this is what we see in Isaiah chapter six. It's the reason that I printed it for you here because this is what it looks like when the darkness of sin comes into contact with the light of God's holiness. And what happens? Isaiah's crying out, woe is me, man of unclean lips. And then everything's shaking. Everything in heaven is shaking because God is speaking and the angels, the seraphim are hiding their eyes and hiding their feet. And paradoxically, John is saying, this is the vision that you too have to see in order to get out of the darkness. You have to see this vision that God is light. And what does John not say about God? What does he not say? God is, how do most people fill in that blank? Whoever said it, they're right. I think God is love. John says that by the way, in chapter four, verse eight, first John four, eight, God is love, but he doesn't say it first. And that's so very important for us because now we imagine love to be approval without critique or, or approval without any concern that the one whom we love needs to change anyway. It's acceptance without any resulting need for change. In other words, love has become indifference. Or we say to a person, whatever you are, whatever you want, whatever you do, however you do it, I approve. So, so if you like it, I like it. If you want it, I want it. I approve regardless. It's not love. It's indifference. Try raising a child like that. What will happen to that child? No parental authority, no moral standards. You don't want to impose upon that child what you see and understand and believe to be right and true. So acceptance without any expectation that your acceptance should and would change that child. What will happen? That child will spin, will twist, not knowing up from down or left from right. It'll be this existential and emotional vertigo that's, that's always upon them. It's not love. It's indifference. Love without holiness is indifference. 
It's not God. It's the opposite of love. It's not him. These three scenarios I'm about to walk through, they all assume a holy love. So look at the first one with me in verse six. It says, if we say that we have fellowship with him while walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Each of the first negative ifs, they're all things that this group that's left were saying. So they're saying that there are certain choices that they were making, certain ways of of living that, that they're now embracing because they're no longer Christians. And what they're saying is that it doesn't do any damage doesn't disrupt my fellowship with God in any way. And John says, it's a lie. And you do not do the truth, which is the most literal way to translate. I think the most helpful that you don't do the truth. And if you don't do the truth, eventually the truth will do you. It will catch up with you. For example, last Sunday in the Wall Street Journal, there was an article called How the Sexual Revolution Has Hurt Women. Did y'all see this? Did you read it? You should go and read it. Basic premise is that since the sexual revolution, the sexual marketplace, as the author calls it, she says it used to be highly regulated, but now it's mostly free. And the only ones benefiting from this new open sexual marketplace are who? Men. Women aren't benefiting, just men. Men, she describes, high in the personality trait that psychologists call sociosexuality which I've never heard before. Seems like a clinically nice way to say that they're always like dogs in heat, but you know, what do I know? I'm just from Oklahoma. (laughs) But what the researchers found is that across 48 different countries, that the sociosexual men were much better suited for emotionless, no strings attached sex, and they find it easy to regard their partners as disposable. But guess who can't? Women. Across the board. The vast majority of women are not sociosexual in any way. But since the hookup culture is now normative in the West, what do single women do? The author gives two options. You either opt out of this culture or you lie to yourself. You pretend. Pretend that you have agency in this. Pretend that you have power over your sexual life. Pretend that you actually are choosing this and that you want this. She says, you pretend that you haven't been launched into a sexual culture that is fundamentally not geared toward protecting your safety or well-being, in which you are considered valuable only in a very narrow physical sense. You pretend. And she says, you do so because it isn't nice to think of oneself as disposable or to acknowledge that other, what other people say about you. It's easier to turn away from the acknowledgement of what is really going on. She says, I've spoken to so many women who've participated in the hookup culture when they were young and years later came to realize how unhappy it made them. As one friend put it, I told myself so many lies, so many lies. And the lie is not only that this darkness, whatever it is, whatever it may be, sexual or otherwise, that it's good, but also that it doesn't do any damage to my relationship with God because it does and to others as well. Other people whose fellowship would be life-giving instead of life-taking. This is why John counters in verse eight, but if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with other people. He's not talking about God here. He's talking about other people with people who would actually be life-giving rather than life-taking. And secondly, the blood of Jesus cleanses us. And cleansing here, notice it's, it's, in an ongoing sense, it's not in the past that he has cleansed us, but he, he continues to do so. This is a metaphor for John for change, for real, emotional, spiritual, relational change. He says that if you walk in the light, 
which is really just meaning you opening yourself up to him. It's really what is portrayed with Nicodemus in John chapter three, which is why I printed that for you. That is somebody attempting to come out of the darkness and to actually walk in the light and to open himself up to, to one who can actually bring about real true change and heal him and give him new desires, new values, new ways to see and to think because we all need that. So how do you need that now? And then he goes on in verse eight. It's the second scenario, and it's very similar. It also involves deception. He specifically mentions self-deception here. He says, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Sounds very much like that article. But this group in John's day was also saying this. They were saying, I'm innocent here. I have no sin. That's what they're saying. And so too are some of you not an absolute sense like they were, but in a very specific sense. When you find yourself in certain circumstances, in certain conflicts, that's what you're saying. I've heard it. Countless times been asked to try and resolve some sort of conflict between spouses, between friends, between colleagues. And inevitably, one or both come in, and this is exactly what they say. I'm innocent here. I'm the victim here. They're the ones that need to be held accountable. They're the ones that need to apologize. They're the ones that need to change. And it's not as though that's not possible. It is. Innocent victims do exist, but it's just so very rare. The vast, vast majority of conflicts, those that are in the conflict share the blame. But our culture is increasingly a victim's culture in which we're innocent, somebody else is wrong, we don't need to change, somebody else needs to change. Do not give in to that. Do not give in to that. Be very, very slow to say that you have no sin and very, very quick to listen and to acknowledge and to admit how you are wrong and the forgiveness that you need and then seek it from God and from others. Because verse nine, here's the hope. Here, here, here's the positive. If, if you will, if you will, If you will confess, then God will forgive you and cleanse you. He mentions cleansing again, but he also mentions forgiveness. He won't just change you. He will change you. But first and foremost, he will forgive you. And some of you don't believe that. You don't believe that God will forgive you. You don't don't believe that God could forgive you. Because whatever it is that you've done, whatever it is that you participated in, you think that's too much. It's too big. It's too great. There's no way he could forgive me for that. And you're afraid. You're afraid to admit that if that really is true of you, that God will take it and he'll clobber you with it. He'll absolutely crush you. And that if other people knew about it, that they would crush you as well. And you simply do not know the holy God of love revealed in Jesus. You don't know him. Not like you need to. Because it's easier and safer for you to stick with scenario three. And that's in verse 10, which is where you continue to pretend you haven't sinned. There's nothing to confess. And notice that this third scenario there in verse 10, it it only has a negative if. Did you notice that? There's no rebuttal from John. There's no uh, rebuttal, no word of hope that counters everything that he's just said. He just ends with, you make God out to be a liar and his word has no place within you. Now, why end like that? Because that's the way that many people choose to end with God resistant, utterly resistant, closed, so much so, so much so that they just don't care anymore what John says. The people in his day that he was dealing with, they just didn't care anymore what he said. 
but not just John, but Paul or Peter or Jesus just don't care anymore. The scriptures and what they say, because there's no place in your heart as hard as it is for God's word. The only place that, that has anything in your heart is your own word. And so as far as John's concerned, there's nothing left to say because they're saying your word's a liar. You're the liar. I'm the truth. And it's harsh. It's stark. John's an old man at this point, very old. He, he doesn't have any time to, to mince words or to waste words. And you need to realize that this is found in the scriptures. It's not just here. This is the way that Jesus ends his life before he goes to the, cruci- to the, to the cross. He goes to Pilate. He talks with Pilate. Then you know where he goes? Herod. What's he say to Herod? Nothing. Nothing at all. It's a tragic place to be. So are you there? Because you don't have to be. Point three, you can remember Jesus. The other way that, the other aspect here of the way in which God deals with darkness. You don't have to be afraid to admit the darkness and the sin in your life because you don't have to be afraid that God will crush you. He won't crush you. He won't. And how do I know that? Because he's already crushed Jesus. You see the word propitiation here in the very last line? It's kind of a strange sounding word. It's not one that we really use all that often. It's an Old Testament word. It's from the realm of the Old Testament temple. And throughout the Old Testament, you find these prayers that God would turn his anger away from Israel, that that he would no longer rightly be angry with them because of their sin and no longer give them the consequences that they deserved. And he did this time and time again throughout the Old Testament. Israel sins. They enter into all sorts of, of, of darkness, sin egregiously, ridiculously. And time and time again throughout the Old Testament, they pray, turn your anger from us. And he did. Because throughout the Old Testament, they were always making these sacrifices in the temple, these animal sacrifices. And that's where God was turning his just holy light upon those sacrifices, pouring out his just anger upon them until it was gone, until it was entirely satisfied. The object that bears the full brunt of God's holy anger and satisfies it, that's a propitiation. And John says that Jesus is the propitiation. All those Old Testament sacrifices, they were anticipation of Jesus. They were mysterious participation in Jesus because he is the one that was crushed under the unbearable light of God's holiness for our darkness to turn, to turn his anger all away. And that means that if you were a Christian or you would become one by faith and through baptism, that, that God's anger is turned away from you forever, forever. Because God's not only a holy God, he's also the holy God of love. He loves you that much. He loves you so very much, listen, that the propitiation has become the paraclete. You see that word advocate in verse one? Look at the word. Do you see it there? Advocate. We have an advocate. If anyone does sin and we do sin, you have an advocate. In Greek, it's paraclete. Paraclete was from the Roman law court. A paraclete was an advocate who would stand up on behalf of the accused and speak for them, speak to the judge on their behalf. And this is what Jesus does eternally with God, the father for you. Just like we often sing the song, arise, my soul arise. Do you remember that song? We're not singing it today, but It says five bleeding wounds received on Calvary. They pour these wounds, pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransom sinner die. These are Jesus's words for you, about you. So we let those words in. We let them in. 
Reading Wendell Berry might help. Do you know Wendell Berry? Do you know him? He's an author you should know. He's, his short story, Pray Without Ceasing, is one of my favorites. It's about people dealing with darkness. It's the story of Thad Coulter, who years ago in rural Kentucky kills his friend. He had mortgaged his farm, his farm that had been in his family for generations, in order to get a loan to give some money to his worthless son, who takes the money on some dumb business venture and, and wastes it and then skips town, leaving Thad with nothing. And so Thad goes to his friend, Ben Feltner, who's his banker, and asks him to forgive the loan. But of course, Ben can't just forgive the loan, but he tells him, sober up, because Thad had gone drunk. He says, sober up, go home, sleep it off, come back and we'll figure something out. But Thad comes back with a gun very immediately and shoots his best friend in the head and kills him. And then Ben's son, Matt, refuses to allow the town to descend into vigilante justice and protects the man who had just killed his father. But even more profoundly and beautifully, Thad's own daughter, Mary Elizabeth, won't leave her father's side after he turns himself in and sits in jail. And this is what Wendell Berry writes and describes. It says she loved him minute by minute, not only as he had been, but as he had become. It was a wonderful and fearful thing to him that he had caused such a love for himself to come into the world and then failed it. He could not have bowed low enough before it and remained above ground. People sometimes talk of God's love as if it's a pleasant thing, but it is terrible in a way. Think of all that it includes. It included Thad Coulter, drunk and mean and foolish before he killed Ben Feltner, and it included him afterwards also. That's what Thad saw. He saw his guilt. He had killed his friend. He had done what he couldn't undo. He had destroyed what he couldn't make. But in the same moment, he saw his guilt included in love that stood as near to him as Martha Elizabeth. And at that moment, wore her flesh. The love that she wore in her flesh is Jesus. And so begin with him. In faith, bow low before his holy love for you because it includes you, whomever you are, whatever you're done. It includes you. So confess whatever darkness you have to carry and don't carry it anymore because God's anger is turned away from you. Jesus eternally pleads for you. Again, the propitiation, remember this phrase, propitiation has become the paraclete. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would enable us to remember all of that which you have said about yourself. Maybe we begin with you, but not simply about you, but about ourselves and who we are and that which we can be in and through you and by your son. And so, Father, I do pray that you would give us the courage to believe your word, to remain in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.